This really is an opportunity to take a look deeply at every aspect of health. We're gonna see all this technology come into the market. Complicated challenge, a complicated solution. Where do you go to get tested? Not just how we test, but where. Community health. A new normal. There is no one right solution. It's gonna take all of us. Welcome to Healthy Conversations, the podcast. An open discussion amongst healthcare professionals about what we've learned from the front lines of the pandemic and how it's transforming our industry in real time. I'm Dr. Daniel Kraft. We're here to share the latest insights around our collective response to COVID-19. In this episode, we'll discuss the evolving approach to testing strategies and how all of us on the front lines can ensure that care is equitable and accessible to everyone. I'd like to hand it over to Dr. Della Tagapur and Dr. Garth Graham to discuss this complicated issue and what we as healthcare professionals can do to mitigate its impact moving forward. Hi, everyone. My name is Dr. Della Tagapur, and I'm here with Healthy Conversations. I have the opportunity to speak with our esteemed guest, Dr. Garth Graham. Dr. Graham is Vice President of Community Health and Chief Community Health Officer at CVS Health. Thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Graham. Thank you for having me, Dr. Tagapur. Um, So, you know, Dr. Graham, I'd really love to talk to you about a few topics that I have felt particularly impassioned about recently. You know, with COVID-19 being the number one thing on all of our minds. I really want to bring that together with one of the most important topics I feel exists in medicine, which is health disparities. What would you say the state of health disparities were before COVID-19 hit the United States? So this country has had a long history of issues in terms of differences in life expectancy, morbidity, and mortality between minority communities and the general population, dating back to as long as we've measured um, health outcomes. And I think certainly, you know, um, came together a lot in terms of public policy in the 1980s. But as I often say to folks, you know, the disparities we see with COVID-19, we saw with H1N1, we saw with um, influenza um, in terms of the impact on our minority communities, and I've been seeing this for some time. So I would say that um, the state is a long history, um, just evidenced um, in a new um, emerging um, novel uh, pandemic um, by, by definition. And so um, as this pandemic has you know, raise awareness, um, it, it, it really just more um, reflects what has been going on for a very long time. Absolutely. And as you mentioned, this pandemic specifically seems to have brought to light the existence of health disparities for even other people in the medical profession and in healthcare that maybe weren't as aware as uh, some of us who have researched health disparities. Is there anything specific that makes this pandemic stand out as far as why it's bringing disparities to light? Well, you know, I think the pandemic on a whole captured um, attention from everyone because it affected everyone's life. So I think it created a heightened sensitivity to the topic area. And then I think a lot of folks who had not heard about this issue uh, before, um, you know, um, were just amazed and astonished to understand that these disparities do exist. You know, the Kaiser Family Foundation had done some polling on health disparities way back when, which still is relevant now because the updated polls show the same. It's only really about half of the general population that have been in tune to this issue around uh, health disparities, and that number has stayed consistent over time. So you definitely have a large swath of the population that had um, um, not necessarily all just a lack of awareness, but certainly uh, were not engaged in this topic around health disparities. So I think um, the discussions around the pandemic, um, because I guess you know it's one, it's one we're one kind of um, new disease entities that has affected everyone's life in one way, shape or form uh, globally. And so I think it it allowed us to have this conversation 
um, in a more direct manner around health disparities. Absolutely. And what you're saying is so important because sometimes maybe it takes sort of a disease or an illness or process leveling the playing field and making everyone aware of their vulnerability. But of course, we saw that even in this virus that we didn't think should show bias um, actually did. For example, um, in New York, there were statistics that there was almost double the rate in the black population of the virus affecting them. So for example, there was a rate of 92.3 deaths per thousand in the black population and 45.2 deaths per thousand in the white population. Why do you think that was? Well, you know, um, the same kind of factors, Dr. Tagapur, that um, have caused infant mortality rates to be persistently um, double that um, between black and white populations. And I would say um, many of those factors contributed, although there were some new factors in terms of, I think, exposures to um, um, minority communities that are overrepresented in essential jobs. So if I was going to summarize, I would say a couple of key factors. One, the underlying issue around social determinants of health. Um, those kinds of things um, in terms of education, uh, housing, um, socioeconomic status, the fact that there are more multi-generational uh, minorities living, uh, more minorities living in multi-generational households, um, which um, by itself um, allows for potentially more spread of the virus and less people able to socially isolate. And then, uh, as I mentioned before, um, the overrepresentation of um, African-American and Hispanic um, uh, populations um, in um, frontline essential jobs. Uh, people who we need to power our country, um, but by doing that, um, they're putting themselves um, continuously at risk. And again, um, a lot of folks have also alluded to the um, disproportionate impact of underlying disease um, from diabetes, hypertension, asthma, et cetera, um, on black and brown communities. So I think all of that um, um, you know, comes together and has been, none of that is new. Um, so all of that just kind of were the ingredients that I think played on in the numbers that we're seeing now. You're absolutely right. And these health disparities are really broad and have been impacting the communities for a long time. And, you know, as we're trying to figure out what to do, some of the suggestions have sort of been downstream and some upstream as far as coming, you know, up with some solutions. Do you have any suggested solutions that we could at least start with? Yeah, you know, I think um, there's an immediate uh, pandemic that's right in front of us um, and what we do about that. Um, so for sure, one of the first things we have to address is testing in black and brown communities. We need to get more communities into testing so that we can not only define the, epi the pandemic for the nation, but define what it means for individuals. Um, having them, um, especially if they're symptomatic or exposed, understand their clinical status and take appropriate actions um, depending on that. So I think testing and understanding is going to be key. And that is a vital short-term, um, and I say short-term in the next couple of weeks to months, um, thing that we have to, I think, um, continue to promote. You know, as we get longer term, that's when we get into a lot of the traditional discussions around um, interventions um, that um, can tackle these kinds of issues. And I definitely believe, you know, investments in housing and the investment in infrastructure um, investing um, in job opportunities um, are a part of the solution to help um, get people out of the initial challenge that got us there in the first place. Absolutely. I could not agree more. And I think this really is an opportunity to take a look deeply at what's going on systemically in the system that 
not only has impacted the outcomes in this pandemic, but really, as you said, in every aspect of health. Um, so very, very critical points. Thank you for sharing those. Do you think there's anything else about health disparities specifically that we could help elucidate for our audience right now? Yeah, you know, um, as long as I've been involved both as an academic researcher, certainly in government official now in the private sector, there's been an ongoing discussion around, you know, what is the impact of um, social determinants of health and is it all, you know, is it genes, environment, you know, what is the, is it one answer versus the other? And I would say it's complicated. Um, certainly um, there are issues where, um, and we are published on that, particularly in heart disease, showing that, you know, socioeconomic status disproportionately added to the burden and the impact of dying from a heart attack. But then you look at um, African-American women around maternal health. And you see where even women of higher educational status um, still have challenging outcomes from um, maternal health and, and subsequent infant mortality related to that. And so the thing, the, the, the one thing that I would say does this a disservice is to try to simplify it. Uh, we need to accept it for the complicated challenge it is um, with kind of the complicated solution, which requires, as you just pointed out, investment upstream investment in the immediate, um, and then investment um, in, along the, the full spectrum of that. Yeah, thank you. And I think, you know, this brings me to something else I want to discuss with you about implicit bias, because often we sort of see the problem as away from us, outside of the healthcare system, that maybe it's something that the policymakers need to deal with, or something that, you know, is just outside of something that we can immediately change and control. And often in healthcare, we sort of want to hope and assume that we are not participating in any of the biases or any of the problems that are, are leading to these challenges for our patients. But we do know through various different research that implicit bias exists. And so outcomes are impacted not only from what patients are coming to us with, but once they're in the hospital, there's actually different outcomes. And we don't know if that's 100% due to implicit bias or not, but we certainly think it's starting, you know, it's coming to light that it is playing a role. Um, what, how do you think implicit bias plays out in our industry in healthcare? Sure. Um, you know, very good point. You know, Nikki Laurie and team uh, published a study a long time ago, but still relevant now, showing that most people, um, clinicians, believe there may be implicit bias in the healthcare system, implicit bias in healthcare overall. But as you got closer to home and talking about like an individual practice, uh, most folks did not think there was implicit bias within their practice or even within themselves. And it's hard to believe that you can have a system that's biased without individuals being biased in it. And so I think it's that. Um, cognitive dissonance that has happened that has allowed us not to have any nexus of responsibility. One of the more um, troubling things, Dr. Tagapur, that I've seen is even the data around pain and how, you know, um, um, clinicians treating the same patients with the same pain syndrome disproportionately uh, feel like African-Americans um, and one of the minorities may be tougher and need less pain medications. And as you know, some of this data um, filters down even to trainees, meaning kind of the next generations are coming behind us um, around clinical care. Um, you're absolutely right. The first um, onus is responsibility. And so realizing that, um, you know, biases inherently um, as we're part of the society um, uh, live uh, many times within us um, in terms of decisions that we make. 
So that acknowledgement um, starts um, the train. But then you have to build in um, um, what I would think are kind of quality checks and barriers. And you see this a lot around the discussion of maternal um, and child health and black women in particular. And how can you build in the faults um, where, where there may be judgment challenges on a clinical level, the system may catch that um, by, by improving quality of care and metrics across the board. And so there is a, um, I think there's a, there's a three-pronged role in terms of intervention. I think there's a role in, in intervening at the individual and, and implicit bias training, um, cultural competency, cultural linguistic competency, the things that go along with that. And then you think through, you know, what are some of the checks and balances that you put in along the way where um, if, if bias or other decision-making doesn't lead to the best outcome, um, then at least there's a quality procedure or a quality check um, that makes sure that that clinician makes that decision that's in the best interest of the patient. So it's, again, much like all the other issues affecting this particular topic, it's multifactorial, um, challenging, um, and one that you want to think through on different levels, but certainly not in any way, shape, or form insurmountable. Thank you for that. Yeah, very inspirational and true because sometimes these issues then become too big and we don't necessarily know where to start or how to start if our institution isn't the one putting the measures in place. Can you suggest uh, a few scenarios perhaps that we could watch out for as individual providers and practitioners where implicit bias might play out? Yeah, so I'm going to um, say one big scenario um, um, from a population health standpoint. I believe as long, this may be more statistic of the scenario, um, um, the infant mortality statistic that we see between black population and general population um, has been persistent in terms of that disparity and persistently unacceptable. Um, and there's a lot that kind of goes into that. And so I think until we see that number eradicated, I would think that we have still fundamentally, uh, the fundamentally um, have inherent flaws, if not failed as a system, to address all of the things that go into that. Now, um, what are the kinds of things that we, we, we would do both I think individually and collectively and then as a system? Um, I kind of alluded to this. I think um, you know, the training um, and the, 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 um, the cultural appropriateness and understanding your community um, and the treating community, whoever the community is that you're interacting with um, is particularly important. You know, um, one of the other things that I've seen um, that I think has been important is the leaders of institutions um, acknowledging that bias exists, acknowledging bias exists there, um, and then what are the domino effect kinds of things. And then I believe that there is a role for the quality movement. Um, and if you have standardized quality of care measures um, or processes or standardized practices, and if you bring that standard of care to all populations, no matter um, you know, a zip code or genetic code, um, then I think you can see some degree of equalization in terms of outcomes, though I think that that doesn't um, eradicate it. So I think that's kind of the multi-level kind of systematics way I would encourage us to think about it. So beautifully put. And it's, it's funny because as practitioners, we really love our algorithms and we really like to know uh, what to do, you know, when you're vitamin when your K levels are high or your calcium is low, and we really like those algorithms, yet somehow for things like pain, as you mentioned, or things that require a more subjective uh, interpretation, we're unfortunately not doing that as well as we can, you know, ideally do. And so what a great suggestion to standardize that until we can kind of get 
over this bump of uh, the implicit biases that we're representing. Um, do you think there's a way for healthcare providers to recognize their own biases outside of taking the implicit association test or other implicit bias, uh, you know, testing mechanisms? Is there any yeah, way to do that yeah. now? You know, um, um, I often say this, you know, we're, we were people before we came, became professionals. And so we have to understand as people, what our what about our backgrounds? All of us, you know, what do we bring to the table that may um, um, cause um, a unintended consequence in a particular either clinical or non-clinical uh, patient interaction? So, um, you know, all I always tell folks, um, including myself, is you know, take some time to understand you, um, your 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 thoughts, interactions. I mean, as clinicians, we process our training through who we are, um, but we still are who we are. Um, and so, you know, understanding yourself as a person, um, and I tell you even for myself, you know, a lot of times if I'm in a clinical scenario and I, 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 afterwards I go, did I do the best I could for that patient? Um, what are some of the things I could have done better? And that reassessment allows me to then, when I enter the next examination room, I then think differently. Um, and I think a lot of this is just about understanding ourselves and, it, you know, Dr. Tagapur, one of the things I often say is if you take blame out of these conversations, much like you took the blame out of the conversations around physician errors, um, you allow people to grow and to come up with solutions. Um, and so this is not a, a, a blame to say, you know, that one person is evil and uh, there's a good team and a bad team and a good guy and a bad guy. I think this is just more understanding how we all as individuals, you know, bring our own baggage to the table and trying to dissect that. Um, as we interact with patients who, you know, we're responsible for. Yeah, absolutely. And it's a sense of humility without, as you say, if we can remove the blame and then we can just go back to the root of likely why we all got in this in the first place was to truly help our patients and to make a change. And um, I think recognizing that it it doesn't have to be about intentions. It has to be about now that you know, make it intentional to make a change. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. And, and I think another thing that I've seen sort of in light of everything going on and all the movements and all the energy um, and awareness about health disparities, I've also seen conversations about having providers that look like the population they're treating. Of course, we know that uh, women were, were making our way up into to the different subspecialties and in, in one of my subspecialties, surgery, you know, we still make up a minority when it comes to leadership positions. And of course, for black and brown individuals and doctors, they make up much less uh, proportion of the actual healthcare workforce. There are some statistics that cite that there's fewer than 7% um, black doctors. Can you tell me what you would think about maybe encouraging more youth, more mentorship to try to bring um, that sort of representation into our specialties and into our field? Yeah, you know, one of the more challenging statistics that I'll add to the ones you just mentioned is the amount of black men, um, um, the Institute of Medicine and others are looking at National Academy of Medicine and others are looking at this. One of black men in, black men in medical school now um, is actually a little bit less than it was in the 70s. So in some areas, it's not about even making progress. Um, it's kind of incremental steps back. Um, getting into medical school, I think, starts with third grade reading levels. Um, and if you look at some of the data, um, you know, um, where a lot of communities start to really fall off is around that time, around that third grade time period. And, um, you know, lack of confidence in your ability to succeed academically 
then sets you up um, for the rest of your life um, in terms of being able to get through the hurdles that allow you to become a clinician in whatever way, shape, or form. So I think a lot of this starts with kind of the early interventions around reading, around the amount of words um, um, your child has at a certain point, and how do we um, create some of the um, uh, uh, kindergarten and pre-K um, investments as a country that kind of get us there. Um, the other thing um, that is, you know, that is uh, vitally important is mentorship. So as people start to you know, um, get through these hurdles and navigate life, um, you know, who are the mentors that they see that then can advise them, um, um, uh, you know, in one way, shape, or form to uh, continue to pursue, you know, navigate these challenges, et cetera. And so for me, um, we have to um, uh, build a pipeline. But then um, for those in the pipeline right now, we have to try to figure out a way for them to ascend to leadership positions so that they can help um, redefine the landscape. Um, and certainly, I think, um, at the very least, um, provide inspiration to uh, individuals coming um, after them. Absolutely. I, I know myself, I'm an immigrant and I didn't necessarily have some of the connections and the contacts that some of my colleagues did and, and didn't really have mentorship for medicine until very late in my career. And really just noticed the difference between the trajectory I took and the path I took to get where I am versus others. And it's made me want to go back and do a lot of mentorship. So do you think that there's a way to sort of encourage all of our colleagues to go back and, and really, you know, go into the pipeline, be mentors and, and pull people through? Yeah. You know, one of the things about being a mentor is you got to want to do it. Yeah. People can sense your energy. Um, and so, you know, um, I would add to what you're saying to just say, um, we got to make people understand the excitement of the, 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 the opportunity that you've been given to help somebody, um, you know, become their best self. And, you know, that person can then go on and influence other people. And um, it's really sometimes, you know, about the legacy of your interactions and, and things that you do. You know, one of the things you said earlier is you mentioned a lot of the energy around the moment. Um, and there have been energetic moments before. The thing to think through, um, if you were, if we're going to think through this from a kinetic standpoint, is how do you translate energy into motion? And so we have to move all of this energy, and somehow something needs to be different a year from now than it was a year that it is now, and then subsequent to that, because that's growth. And so my 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 thinking about kind of the, the discussion around mentorship is, you know, having um, you know, in building out that cadre, building out that passion, bring using the energy of the moment to create um, excitement about mentorship and reaching into communities. So then we start to get more progress um, and more outcomes and more um, um, uh, impact over the next um, couple of years. That sounds wonderful. I'm, I'm all for it. So <laughs> happy to be by your side during that process. So Dr. Graham, I also wanted to talk about this, this concept that you're talking about, learning from the moment and then applying it, putting it into motion. What do you think we can learn from this moment in general? Now, whether that's the combination of this life altering once, you know, once in our lifetime level pandemic with also all the movements that are going on and the awareness with Black Lives Matter and health disparities. Mm -hmm. What what can we kind of combine with this once again energy that's available so that we can transition it into action? You know, the the the, the interesting thing is um a lot of the folks um who have come together to create a lot of the energy now they come from disparate backgrounds. You have people who are coming from um, uh, low-income communities um, who have seen and felt this pressure for a long time 
and then now are seeing it as a time to be able to raise their voice. And I see a lot of folks from where I am from, and I, you know, um, and that makes me excited because that makes me know that they're engaged in the process. Then you have people um, in many cases who have power and influence who are not from these communities, but recognize that, that something is wrong. Um, they may not be sure exactly what it is, but recognize that something is wrong and that we have to address it. The, the, the key learning point here is movement. And movement means that things have changed and moved. And so if you have all of these ingredients like you did in the 1960s, how do you mix um, and you know, bring everything together so that the outcome from this is some degree of change? One of the things I, um, that um, used to always kind of get me down is when I'd see patients who thought that um, whatever their drastically bad hypertensive number was, was what it was always supposed to be. So you know, blood pressure 190, you know, over 100. And you know, a lot of times you'd be like, wait, that's not acceptable. And I'm like, oh, it's always been that high. So that they've kind of reset themselves to a new normal that is um, actually not normal. And I think for a long time as a country, we've been in a not normal stage for a lot of those folks in our community. And then now um, the question is, again, similar to hypertension, how can we let folks know that um, normal should be better um, and normal should be good um, and that the old normal doesn't always have to be? That's right. And it's, as you said, recognition that there is this problem to address in the first place. And, um, you know, many of us have always recognized the existence of systemic racism and the impact on the healthcare system and society as a whole. And others are just kind of recognizing the puzzle pieces that are all so interconnected. Do you have some pragmatic sort of suggestions for how to begin to dismantle and tackle this problem? Oh yeah, um, I do. Um, I, um, it's, you know, I'm a, I'm a clinician, a doctor uh, who's worked in healthcare, but I believe a lot of the solutions don't lie in healthcare. I believe it lies in uh, education and creating opportunity. I think if we're gonna collectively think through one place that we wanna focus our efforts, um, I would focus on an early childhood education um, because the kinds of domino effects and things that happen you know, once we give kids that good fundamental start, um, they can um, both succeed professionally and go on to become you know, whatever they want it to be, or their, you know, their, their house desires and their passions are. But also that actually makes them healthier. Uh, we know that there's a you know, seven to nine year life expectancy, whether you graduate, difference in life expectancy, whether you graduate high school or not. So um, just, you know, just allowing them to, to achieve that goal then um, sets them up for a longer life. And so I think that, um, again, if we were going to take all the energy, all the osmosis, all the molecules, all the ingredients in this particular moment and channel it in one place, um, I would channel it towards um, giving our kids as best to start as they could um, in terms of success in life. Absolutely. The future is always in the hands of our youth. Thank goodness. <laughs> um, is there anything specifically we can do to challenge ourselves as healthcare providers to do better when it comes to equality of care? Yeah, you know, um, um, one of the things we often, um, as you know well from training and, and the future ahead is we constantly reassess ourselves, you know, whether that be board exams or different things, you know, there are often things to make sure that we are reassessing where we are from a clinical standpoint. And I think we should do that assessment for where we are in terms of um, what we bring to the table from a moral caliber standpoint and what are the kinds of things that influence our clinical and non-clinical decisions. I say, you know, um, it's, you know, something I often do. If I go from one room to the next, I might stop and go, 
what did I do there? How was that interaction? Did I, did I treat them in a culturally sensitive manner so that patient knew I cared about them? Um, I think a lot more times patients want, a, a, they both definitely want a caring and competent doctor, but um, we sometimes put less emphasis on the caring. Um, and so I think as clinicians, um, as we continue to maintain our competency, um, let's maintain our caring um, for how we care and how we see pain and how we see suffering um, and how we treat that regardless of uh, race or ethnicity. Yeah, absolutely. Taking the opportunity to do some self-reflection and some introspection, I think is always really, really important, particularly with what we're doing and how um, much of a gift it is to have the opportunity to do what we do and have potentially very vulnerable population in front of us and, and every one of our decisions can impact that. So thank you for Thank you for sharing that. Um, so it's been absolutely wonderful speaking with you, Dr. Graham, and really enlightening. And I, I really appreciate this opportunity. Is there anything, you know, speaking directly to healthcare providers that you would like to add or share? Yeah. Right now, I think um, as a country and as a community, um, we all believe that there should be some change. There may be different viewpoints on what the degree of change is um, and what are the things that need to be changed. But I would say to kind of all of us in the healthcare communities, let's commit to being a part of the process. Um, let's commit to thinking through, again, how our actions individually are, more, are both responsible for the problem um, and part of the solution. And then let's think through how we create the systems um, and the infrastructure that um, helps to kind of reverse that. Um, you know, when we stick at what happened in 1960s, you know, um, what led, what initial periods of turmoil eventually led to the birth of things like Medicare and Medicaid and, you know, kind of things that we view as a normal part of healthcare now, we do know that, that, that things can change. Um, and so I would say um, just commit um, to being a part of the change. And certainly I think um, being a part of being a better person, if not a better system. Wonderful. And is there anything else that we haven't covered that you'd like to share with our audience? No, I think you covered it all. I mean, it's a challenging time. Um, an exciting time, um, but you know, um, I once heard somebody say, um, uh, you know, never let a good crisis go to waste. Um, and so let's take advantage of the moment um, to, you know, make sure that we leave it better than we found it. That's right. And I think one of the benefits that has happened during the pandemic is sort of bringing to light the moral injury, the mental health crises, and the, the stressors that the frontline and others have experienced. And, and I hope that out works towards removing some of the stigma that's been unfortunately surrounded with uh, mental health issues but in the past. Dr. Graham, I just have one more question for you. How can clinicians take care of themselves in this moment so that they can take care of others with empathy? Yeah, you know, that's um, such an important point that I myself have challenges with. Um, I think we all have to realize our both personal and professional limitations. And again, you know, understand that we bring to this um, ourselves as people uh, before we became the clinical or um, healthcare professionals that we are. Um, and the burnout is a genuine, very real phenomenon. Um, and so we have to really encourage um, both ourselves as well as the people we interact with to take time to, to, to understand what you're feeling, um, understand the dynamics of what's happening, how that's impacting you, um, taking a step back many times and just taking some time to yourself um, and refreshing your mind, your 
um, your overall sensibilities um, so that um, you can become um, continue to, to thrive. So I think right now um, is a good time for us all to take some time to just uh, be ourselves um, and understand. I think that's what a lot of this moment is about, is that we want everyone to be comfortable being themselves. And so thinking a lot about how you can do that and be that, um, but then understanding that burnout is a very real phenomenon, um, but it's also a treatable phenomenon. Um, and they're the kinds of things in terms of community um, and individual connectiveness that's important. I agree. Thank you so much, Dr. Graham. Thank you for your incredible insight and your dedication to addressing all this change. It's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. Thank you for having me. Agreed. Totally. Thank you, Dr. Tagapur. That was good stuff. Truly, Dr. Graham. It was really wonderful speaking with you. All right. Good stuff. Thank you, guys. Really appreciate it. Okay. Thank you for your time. All right. All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Thank you for listening to Healthy Conversations, the podcast. It's our mission to reveal the front lines of the healthcare profession and educate everyone as to the challenges and potential opportunities of a world changed by Corona. Next time, we'll look at COVID recovery efforts, how we're using data and modeling to our advantage as we continue to tackle COVID and the role that digital health tools play in recovery efforts. Have thoughts you'd like to share or COVID topics you'd like us to address? Let us know on Twitter at CVS Health.